Welcome to Leaders Recon, where we will be discussing leadership, warrior skills, and other unique opportunities within the G3 Leader Development Branch. I'm your host, Joshua Carr, and today we're going to be discussing multi-domain operations and modernization with Lieutenant Colonel Judd Mafus. Lieutenant Colonel Mafus, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. So for those in our audience who are not familiar with your background, could you kind of highlight, you know, some of your experience both on the civilian and military sides? Sure. I'm a traditional guardsman, which means I've spent my entire service in the in the National Guard. Mm-hmm. I enlisted in the Louisiana National Guard in 1988, went to Desert Storm in 1991, got back, um, was coming up on the end of my uh, initial term of service. I think that's called ETS. Yeah, initial term of service. Had the opportunity to go to officer candidate school, the state officer candidate school. Uh, did that, uh, was commissioned in 1993 under the old Reserve Officer Management Act, which required you to be a lieutenant for 60 months. Uh, you're gonna be a second lieutenant for three years and then a, a first lieutenant for for two. So, you know, people think I'm a late bloomer. It's, it's not that, I was just commissioned under an old law. Uh, so uh, did the typical officer assignments in Louisiana to include my company command and what you know you what you call key and developmental assignments, uh, battalion XO, uh, just kind of circulated through the brigade three shops. So I mean, I was basically in operations. So were you always a traditional guardsman then? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I was because uh, I loved my civilian job. I was a I was a high school teacher and a football oh. coach in one of the largest high schools in Louisiana. Great tradition. I mean, it was. It was the only high school in this particular, we call them parishes, but you think of them as counties. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I absolutely love what I was doing. I mean, you know, you can teach and coach and starve to death. So m- my decision to, to, to leave that vocation was more of a financial one because I got married and started having children. So do you have a football team then? Yeah, yeah, um, at all levels. So, I mean, and obviously in high school, it's the Ruston High School Bearcats. Uh, I have to go with my alma mater uh, for uh, my college team, Louisiana Tech University Bulldogs, go Bulldogs, um, which everyone looks at me crazy because why aren't you an LSU fan? I mean, you know, isn't everybody from Louisiana an LSU fan? I'm like, well, no, no, not necessarily. My wife went to LSU, so we are forced to watch the LSU games, but uh, I'm a diehard, died in the wool Louisiana Tech fan. And then of course, um, uh, pro teams, I'm not really a fan of, of a particular team. I follow players and coaches. Uh, right now, I'm a, a, a Kansas City fan just because I like Patrick Mahomes. It doesn't matter that they won. They could have lost, you know, every ball game last year, and I'd still be a fan uh, uh, of Kansas City because of Patrick Mahomes. As you know, uh, uh, 9-11 happened. In fact, I was I was in airborne school on 9-11. Mm-hmm. I was in jump school. Uh, we were in the harnesses, and uh, that's during Tower Week. Uh, hopefully, you'll get to skip Tower Week. Hopefully, there'll be too much wind. The, the towers are terrifying. But anyway, uh, the Black Hats came in. They kind of indexed training. They got everybody around. They told us what was going on. Of course, we thought they were just messing with us. I mean, because Black Hats, that's what they do. I mean, they mess with you unmercifully during airborne school. And uh, no, they told us that... Uh, uh, two planes had hit hit the towers in New York, and that uh, one had uh, hit the Pentagon. 
Uh, they sent us all back to our BOQs, BO, BAQs, whatever you call them, uh, what we called them back then. Our, our temporary lodging, uh, they recalled us the next day. Fort Benning went to ThreatCon Delta, which is the, uh, well, yeah, it's the highest force protection condition there is. I mean, you have to have an ID just to get in individual buildings, much less on post. Recalled us the next day. Uh, General Moyne was the chief of the infantry at the time. He personally spoke to every student at Fort Benning and says, hey, our mission is a training mission. Uh, we are going to continue to train, but some of you are going to be accelerated. So if you had orders for BUDS, uh, the Navy SEAL guys, uh, if you had orders for any kind of EOD, if you had orders for any of the special forces uh, groups, if you had orders for the 160th Special Aviation Operations Regiment, yeah. you were gone. I mean, those guys got their jumps all in one day, and then they got their night jump, and then we never saw them again. Uh, except when those poor guys that were going to the Ranger Indoctrination Program got picked up. And uh, it was a different world because we were now a nation at war. So the, the RIs that showed up to pick up the the 75th guys were a little bit more hands-on, if you can imagine. Uh, but then I got back to my state and it was, you know, we are a nation at war. And so just, it's not a matter if you're gonna deploy, it's it's when you're gonna deploy. Um, uh, and and a after three deployments, I got offered a job and at National Guard Bureau. Mm -hmm. And I've been on the uh, ADR program ever since. That was back in 2008 and I've deployed uh, a time or two since I've been on on the AGR program. So sir, long range precision fire is something that I've heard thrown, the term thrown around. I know there's like six main lines of effort for modernization that have been outlined by the chief of staff. Can you kind of give us an overview of what modernization looks like for the Army of 2028? It's, it's the idea that in order to be multi-domain operations capable, and then at some point be dominant, okay. that we have to modernize our war fighting systems. Precision long range fires is just one of them. Uh, our cyber and, and space capabilities is, is another. I mean, even how we shoot, move, and communicate on the battlefield, you know, modernizing some of our legacy FBCT systems, FBCB2 systems that we used in in the CENTCOM AOR, like Blue Force Tracker, like CPOF, bringing all that up uh, and, and, and modernizing it to really work off things like 5G, uh, fifth generation networks. So it's, uh, it, it's it, it, you know, if you ask me what modernization was, I, I, would, uh, I would take you probably down to Futures Command and say, this is modernization. Uh, but then you kind of have to redact that to understand what it really is. Yes, it's precision long range fires. Yes, it's artificial intelligence. Yes, it's unmanned uh, robotic systems. Yes, it's space and cyberspace uh, uh, communication suites capabilities. But modernization is it's not uh, it's not a new concept. Mm -hmm. The way we organize, train, and equip the army has always been underpinned by modernization. I mean, okay. we want the most modern, most advanced, most, most uh, lethal systems in our formation. Multi-domain operations is not a, a new concept. Uh, if you go back to the Starry Report, 
which is written after the, the Yom Kippur War, where General Story said, hey, you know, if you want to if you want to know how to synchronize air and uh, and land domain operations, study what the uh, what Israel did in the Yom Kippur War. That that was our first real example of air land battle or multi-domain battles. And so we are modernizing for one reason and one reason only. So if you look at the uh, modernization strategy that came out in uh, October of 2019, General McConville, the chief of staff of the Army, says we're going to modernize for multi-domains capability by 2028 and then for uh, multi-domain operations dominance by 2035 and of course 2035 is uh the mark on the wall for when china will have the largest uh blue water navy in in the world but what caused the change uh, you know what was the shift in in the military's focus we've been spending the last you know 20 years fighting uh in coin operations what what you know what made the change now yes coin was the focus for almost 20 years I mean, coin is a is it's a tactic. I don't know if it's necessarily a strategy, but the focus shifted really with this incoming administration. So, President Trump was elected in 2016. Uh, his first national security strategy was released in uh, January of 2017, which said that we are going to uh, focus on great power competition, or he called it a return to great power competition. Uh, much like the great power competition between the United States and Russia, uh, or the Soviet Union, rather, uh, during the Cold War, except the great power competition, it would be with our near-peer competitors, China and uh, a resurgent Russia. Uh, that led to the uh, December 2018 National Defense Strategy, which basically said, yes, the same thing. It's a return to great power competition with the focus on the two-plus two plus three threats. So the two were Russia, China, the three were North Korea, Iran, and then the one non-state actor we call uh, violent extremist organizations. Okay. The military has been talking a lot about the acquisitions process and, and the money you know, that it takes to fund uh, modernization. And I've heard the term night court thrown around a lot. Well, can you explain to our listeners like what is, what, what is night court and like how did that come to be? Night Court was born out of uh, Dr. Esper, the, the president. He's, he's now the Secretary of Defense, but when he was the Secretary of the Army, uh, he started these deep dives into every one of the program evaluation groups, every one of the PEGs, any, all the MDEPs, just, I mean, we're talking pennies, accounting for pennies. So during these night courts, uh, when they were doing this very holistic deep dive review of all the Army's programming, planning, budgeting, and execution processes, he found out that there was about $40 billion, with a B, dollars of redundant spending, mm -hmm. of uh, wasteful spending. And, and so uh, he took that culture of fiscal responsibility to the department writ large. So now as the Secretary of Defense, he's requiring all the services to do a deep dive into their uh, programming, planning, programming, budgeting, and execution processes. 
to identify where we can, you know, save save money. I don't I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what the entirety of the budget for the National Guard is. It's about um, forty billion. That's what I was going to yeah. say. I thought it was about the same. Yeah, so, so yeah, but I mean, it's just a coincidence that that's what what was found to be uh, redundant in the in the night courts. But so, how will some of the new fielding of equipment impact the National Guard then? And and, and what does that look like? I I know you've talked before about a couple of different phases or waves of right. And, and you mentioned you mentioned some of the capabilities of uh, our offset strategies, long range fires. Uh, deep learning machines, human machine, human machine collaboration, and then some of your capabilities in space and cyberspace. Those are the operations activities investments that we're going to make in order to modernize for multi-domain operations. Now, what it's gonna look like for the Guard? So modernization uh, for MDO uh, is focused on two, what we're calling force packages. And these force packages are going to enable us to do multi-domain operations. There are no guard units in force package one. However, there are uh, guard units in force package two. We know because the Army uh, strategic planning guidance uh, that came out last uh, summer in June says uh, every guard uh, infantry uh, brigade combat team which is about 18, and we're talking infantry, not striker, brigade combat team, not armor, although both those are important. Each one of the uh, IBCTs will get what they're calling a mobile protected firepower company. Mm-hmm. It's, it's basically a light tank company of 14 platforms that will be assigned to either the brigade headquarters for a separate brigade, or if it's a division aligned brigade, it'll be in the division headquarters, and they'll be sliced out to the separate battalions based on the main effort. So if you got three maneuver battalions uh, in, a, in an armored uh, brigade combat team, two, two tank battalions, one, mm-hmm. one Bradley battalion, you could imagine whichever one is the main effort would get the preponderance of, of those, those platforms. Uh, if it's if it's a division aligned brigade, then it's up to the division commander how he uses them, and he may keep them together instead of slicing them out. Uh, but that will be fielded in 2024, in anticipation of a multi-domain operations division minus CTC, which will focus strictly on multi-domain operations. Or if I can do a small infomercial. Uh, soon to be joint all domain operations uh, as soon as the, the new doctrine is written. But it's still multi-domain operations for now, soon to be joint all domain operations uh, soon. So, sir, what did you mean when you said offset strategy? The American way of war is to achieve uh, strategic, overwhelming strategic overmatch against our competitors, our adversaries. Okay. During World War II and World War I, that was attrition, you know. Uh, it was air-breathing asset for air-breathing asset, man for man, bullet for bullet. You wanted a numerical advantage, so we're talking about a quantitative advantage. Well, after, after the Cold War ended and we drew down, God, we, got, we got rid of cores, we got rid of divisions, 
we went to a million, what we call, we call it a million man or a million soldier army, which is made up of the, the majority of it, about 470,000 is in the, uh, in the active component, Compo 1, and, and the rest is in the National Guard, Compo 2. Uh, about 343,000 and some change, and then about 100,000 in, in the United States Army Reserve. Um, with the ability to surge, if we had to, I mean, if it was a if it was a full mobilization, of course, we you know we would have to build up the size of our force, but we wouldn't have to immediately because we seek what we call a qualitative comparative advantage. That means leveraging technology to offset the disparity in quantity. So the second offset strategy was some of those uh, capabilities that you mentioned, uh, long range fires, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, ISR, satellites that enabled uh, global uh, positioning and navigation, you know, I think GPS satellites. Okay. The third offset strategy was really high-end technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, quantum computing, uh, human-machine combat teaming, where uh, a warfighter would interface with a machine in order to speed up things like decision-making. Uh, and then augmentation systems, where a soldier would be augmented by a machine in order to increase performance. Think of some of, uh, uh, like your exoskeletons. Uh, think about some, some drones that are so small that every soldier would have a, an ISR asset that was organic to that soldier as a system uh, where he could fly over the horizon, you know, uh, in, in order to enable uh, fire and maneuver. You mentioned World War II, right? Mm -hmm. Where war of attrition, right? Right. Well, until the atomic bomb, of course. <laughs> okay. That was the ultimate offset strategy. The first offset strategy was the atom bomb, but yes. So like, if you, if you look at like, just let's go to tanks, right? And you have the ratio of uh, American tanks to German tanks at the time. Like it, they clearly had a better platform than we did, right? And more of them because they were fighting the home game. You know, they were on their home turf. All of our tanks, we had to get there some way. Obviously, we came out of that conflict victorious, you know, you know, taking some of the same strategy, moving on into the modern era um, when technologies and stuff get utilized. Like, what's your view on a strategist as a strategist, you know, on how we don't end up like Germany, right? We don't end up in the situation where our platform and equipment is better, but we're facing drone swarms or, you know, for example, right? That's, that's, I know that's a really basic example, but. Not really, I mean, but I mean, you, you, you make a good point, you know, how do we maintain our qualitative advantage? Well, that's uh, investment in research development and engineering. Um, excuse me, Michael Griffin, Dr. Michael Griffin is the uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Development. And he has really empowered the Strategic Capabilities Office and uh, DARPA to do some very cutting edge research that is unencumbered by traditional budgetary and acquisitions processes. So if you're familiar with the Army acquisitions process, it is uh, very complex. Uh, it takes a long time to get to what we call milestone B, where it becomes a program of record. Well, the, the Strategic Capabilities Office and DARPA are 
they're exempt from traditional tier one acquisition programs, milestones, and timelines. Okay. So they are really working on some cutting edge stuff, especially with unmanned autonomous systems. I mean, you think about that. We have unmanned systems, but somewhere there's a, a soldier at a console. Now we're talking about an autonomous system, a system that can think and make decisions for itself. And as long as we, and that's the, the whole movement behind STEM uh, and partnering with academia, uh, th this all goes back to uh, what, what uh, Dr. Griffin is trying to do with RD&E. It's basically make sure that we maintain our qualitative advantage, okay. uh, e even though they might have bigger, they might have better, they might have more, we'll have, we'll have the best, most advanced systems, uh, cutting edge stuff, really. So you kind of mentioned this already about the domains, but can you highlight for our listeners, like what, when we hear the term multi-domain operations, what are those domains and how has technology, you know, shifted the way we think about those? Well, there's the, the, the terrestrial domains, there's land, sea, and air, and then there's the extraterrestrial of space and uh, cyberspace, non-contiguous, non-tactile domain. Under multi-domain operations, the primacy of space and cyberspace has been elevated. So we're talking about a, a layered defense in space, something that we've never thought about before. I mean, we've, we've used space for peaceful reasons. I mean, we have satellites in space that are defense satellites. You have weather monitoring satellites. You have ISR satellites. You have communication satellites. You have GPS satellites. And then that final layer in what we call geosynchronous orbit, 35,000 kilometers above the Earth, you have missile warning satellites, infrared detection satellites. But if you think about all those satellites and what they do, everything else, all the joint functions, all the Army warfighter functions are controlled from space. And, and, and uh, that's got to give us some pause and, and maybe a, a strategic inflection point to where we say, how vulnerable are we in space? And how do we harden our satellites? Because if you lose a, if you lose a GPS satellite, a communication satellite, even a weather monitoring satellite where you can you know, you can assess uh, and, and anticipate the effects of, of weather on your operations. You know, all you, you don't have to do anything kinetic to render a division commander blind, deaf, and dumb. All you have to do is jam the uplink of his GPS satellite. Then what's he going to do? Pull out a map and a compass, you know, uh, which, you know, that's, a, that's an important skill, but it's certainly uh, a perishable skill and not one that we would uh, prefer to do, but uh, the, the, in multi-domain operations, it's the primacy of space and cyberspace that we're really emphasizing uh, in importance. So I know you've, I've heard you say before, jointness matters. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at interoperability between all these different functions as, as the whole scheme turns from, you know, green and blue to more purple, across the formation, what are skills that, you know, soldiers and young leaders can work on developing that helps them, enables them to fight and win, you know, in the multi-domain warfare? Well, and if you take it back to, you know, the basic soldier individual skills, shoot, move, and communicate, okay. you know, 
shoot, move, and communicate in, in a, in a multi-domain battlefield is going to be uh, much different than what we're used to because not only do you have to be able to talk to, you know, your adjacent units, you know, higher, lower, uh, left and right, uh, but you also have to be able to talk to units in the air and units at sea and uh, your, your uh, space enabler teams as far as getting uh, hmm. bandwidth uh, on, a, on a satellite uh, and then be able to uh, employ cyber effects, you know, jamming electronic warfare. So the, the, the soldier of 2028, when we say we're going to be multi-domains, fully operation capable, and, and the soldier of, of 2035 is going to have to have a, he's going to have to have a pretty deep skill set uh, because he is going to be uh, required to layer those things uh, seamlessly uh, and, and be able to operate seamlessly in, in all domains with all services. That's why interoperability matters. Jointness matters. I mean, going back to the Goldwaters-Nichols Act of 1986, the, the Department of Defense Reform Act, we said jointness matters, but we never really talked about jointness in terms of the acquisitions process until uh, the capstone concept for joint operations came out and said, hey, these are the investments that we need to make that are going to enable force development and force design for a, a truly joint force. That means communication systems. That means battle uh, uh, I, ISR. Uh, that means unmanned aerial. All, all, the, all the systems that enable multi-domain operations and jointness have to be modernized as well. I mean, you, you can modernize all your major platforms, but if you don't modernize everything in, in say a Bradley fighting vehicle that makes that combat capable, mm -hmm. the communication systems, the navigation systems, the weapon systems, then then have you really modernized, I guess. So sir, you've talked a lot about multi-domain operations, modernization, and what that is. For the leaders out in the formation today, what are things they can do if they're wanting to lean forward um, to prep for like training plans or things when we're looking at the near peer fight now and we're looking at multi-domain operations um, from that perspective? Well, so the Army has a, a training strategy. It's, it's called the Sustainable Readiness Model. And basically, it's, it's a, a, a yearly progression of how we build readiness up to a uh, culminating training event like a NTC or a JRTC or a JMRC rotation in, in, in Hohenfels. Um, and for the leaders, in our formations from the division on down to the team leader, we're going to have to reimagine uh, how we think about readiness. You know, and not, not just, you know, can I shoot if I'm, you know, uh, an ABCT, you know, can I shoot table eight? Can I shoot table 12? Can I do a combined arms live fire exercise? And can I do a, a fire coordination exercise or field training exercise? Yes, those things will still have to be done, but how will you train to ensure that you are multi-domains capable and multi-domain dominant? Obviously, it's going to depend on how soon you modernize, how soon we field some of these systems, like the mobile protected firepower, like the, long, the new long-range fires capabilities. But the important thing is to keep up 
with the doctrine, of course. I mean, you know, uh, I'm a big proponent of lifetime learning. You know, not necessarily going to a school where you're a student. It's it's you know just just doing you know layman's research. You know, the entire the entire uh, world is indexed on Google and YouTube, and and so I would encourage people you know to sit down and and you know put MDO in your search engine. You know, put put Army Modernization in your search engine and, and look at some of the million things that you get. You know, uh, I would encourage commanders especially to read the uh, Army Modernization Strategy and the Army Modernization Strategy Implementation Plan where we talk about how we're going to do CTC rotations starting in 2024. That will require us to be multi-domains, capable, uh, functional, and interoperable read things like uh, the Army Strategic Planning Guidance, where it says the Guard is going to get these mobile protective firepower platforms. And then, you know, I mean, the owners of Army Doctrine, uh, TRADOC, Combined Arms Command and, you know, Features Command to some, I mean, they have, they have open source public domain sites where you, Lieutenant Josh Carr, or, 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 or me can go and get the, you know, the latest pubs and, uh, you know, I mean, they're FOUO, uh, but you know you have to sign in with your CAC. You got to go to the Rhymer Digital Library, but you know you can stay current uh, without necessarily being a a student in a in a pure academic setting, like your you know uh, your PME uh, or some of your MOSQ schools. So, as a strategist, then do you see the National Guards? Role shifting as like Force Package One comes out and portions of the Army are modernizing. I think, I think it's a sliding scale. So we're going to build readiness and modernize at the same time, but that requires uh, the Army uh, to offload some of its some of its mission sets, and that I mean, they'll be offloaded to the Guard. I mean, that's we've always uh, you know we've always picked up mission sets where it was necessary for us to, whether it enables the Army to kind of take a knee and, and rebuild readiness and modernize. So the, the Guard, the, you can't really separate the Guard's role from the Army and modernization. We will modernize at a, at a different schedule, of course, but on the, on the sliding scale of, of operations, modernization, and readiness, you know, it, the, the Army will have to, at, at, at some point, divest itself of some mission sets. And the Guard, as we've always done uh, since we became the Guard, we will pick up some of those mission sets and enable the Army to recover readiness and modernize, and then it'll be our turn. Um, but, you know, that, that's a role that, that uh, we've always used to, to add value to the, to, to the total force uh, concept. So I know you talked a little bit, sir, on the reliance on technology, satellites, cyberspace for all levels of command. What are some pieces of advice you have for soldiers for like training or countering, you know, being prepared for when those resources are mitigated? It, well, it all goes back to shoot, move, and communicate, right? You know, so you're an infantryman, uh, so you're intimately familiar with battle drills. And you're intimately familiar with seven eight, and you're you're intimately familiar with, 
the, the soldier skills that are required for the expert instruments badge. You know, th those, those aren't going away. I mean, those skill sets, individual training, you know, if, and it's hard sometimes to motivate soldiers to do things like that when there's all this cool stuff out there. Yeah. You want to get your hands on the latest FBT CB2 systems. You want to get your hands on this portable uh, uh, common operating picture that that uh, suite of, of of software that replaced like the old CPOF. You know, you really want to get your hands on that stuff, but at the same time, you still got to be able to dead reckon with a compass and a map during the day and at night. You still have to be able to put a, a single channel radio into operations, load it, enter and leave the net. You know, you still got to be able to call for fire uh, using a, a map and, and, a, and a lensetic compass and a, a, and a uh, pair of binos with a reticle scale in it. So, you know, I would not discourage anyone from, from still, I mean, I call it the EIB stuff, but it's not just, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not just applicable to infantrymen. Hey, this is what you need to do your job, or hey, this is what you need to, to do to be good at your job. I mean, you, it, it's applicable to all soldiers. All those are, we used to call it common tasks or CTT, common task training. That should never be, a, a, I guess, a training strategy that, that we abandon. I mean, we should always be able to, uh, I mean, if it's, if it's additional guardsmen at drill, team leader takes out his, his, his fire team out in the field and they do movement contact, they do movement formations and movement techniques, how to IMT, you know, how to call for fire, how to land navigate. Uh, with with a map and a compass, you absolutely have to be able to do that stuff because, I mean, if there's any anything that we know about technology, it will fail. And if we if there's anything that we know about our adversaries, especially China, they're trying to find ways to defeat those those uh, capabilities and uh, that technology. So, yeah, I mean, and especially when you think about uh, development of weapons like. Uh, electromagnetic pulse weapons that would just knock out all your C4I systems. Then what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you're going to be in you're going to be an analog soldier in a digital world. So something that I found super interesting that you said was the light tanks. You know, coming to the light infantry fight, which is not a capability that's existed before, or at least in recent years. No, it's a game changer. Yeah. What is your advice to young leaders specifically? Is there kind of looking at some of these new capabilities that are, that are gonna exist and the way they plan and train to execute tasks? Well, uh, w without doing a, a, a shameless plug for the Marine Corps, I would say study how the Marine Corps fights. The Marine Corps has always fought with light tanks. You know, you have, you have tanks and you have dismounted infantry and they, they, they use them for force protection, they use them uh, to, to maneuver on the battlefield, it's always, you know, the Marines have always fought with with tanks as part of of infantry fire maneuver. Uh, so, you know, until the Army develops a doctrine doctrine for the mobile protective firepower platform, look at what the Marine Corps does. So, sir, out of all the emerging technology that you can talk about with us here today, what's something that really sticks out to you as you know most interesting? Autonomous robotic systems. 
Um, you know, I, if, I, I tell people if they ever want to try to predict the future, read Gene Rodenberry, who wrote the Star Trek series, uh, Isaac Asimov, famous science, science fiction writer, James Cameron, the guy that wrote the Terminator series. Artificial intelligence and, and autonomous learning robotic systems, it's, it's a scary concept because we, our culture, the military culture, is we want the man in the machine, right? And even if the man is not in the machine, we want wherever the controls are for that machine to be operated by a man. Now we're talking about a system that thinks for itself, that does for itself, that uses all sorts of input, algorithms, heat, light, any kind of input that you can imagine to learn and make decisions. And that's, we're not, that's not the future, that's, that's here and now. When I talked about SCO and DARPA earlier, that's the kind of things that they're working on. And if, if you're a service chief, you're a four-star general, that, that might be worrisome to you. You know, what am I gonna do with all my pilots if, if I'm the chief of staff of the Air Force and if this is the wave of the future? You know, you know my, air power, uh, air superiority, that's what I do. You know, I, I, I train guys to do that. I spend millions of dollars to get them to be able to do that. So now what I do, if, if, if I've got a, a system, a, a fifth gen or sixth gen fighter that does that for itself, not even remotely, it actually thinks and does because it learns. It, it takes inputs and learns, uh, teaches itself. I, you know, I, I hate to say scary, but it, you know, it could be kind of scary, a little daunting, uh, but it's, it's gonna require a, a a cultural shift on the part of the services. Um, but it, it's coming. I mean, and, and, it's, and, and it's actually here. If you, if you look at some of the stuff that, that DARPA is working on, I mean, I, in an unclass setting, I can't really talk about that portfolio. But what they're doing with artificial intelligence and quantum computing uh, is, uh, it, it's things that we would think about as science fiction, but it's not, it's, it's here now. So that leads into my next question, which we ask all the guests that come on, and that is if there's a resource out there that you would recommend to young leaders out there you know, wanting to know more information related to multi-domain operations, related to modernization, what would it be? My go-to resource for everything is either the Pentagon Library or the library at National Defense University. Okay. Uh, both of them are online. The entire catalog is, is indexed online. And I would just go in and put in the search engine whatever whatever they're interested in. But I mean, like I said, I mean, some of the stuff is dry. I mean, if you think about doctrine and strategy, it's it's written by specialists for specialists. But I really would recommend the Army Modernization Strategy. Okay. It's it's about 115 pages. You can read it on a short flight or a long metro ride, and it's really it's really written at, at, a, at a level, I think, that it doesn't require specialization to understand. Uh, but it, 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 it'll get you excited about what's, and, 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 and learning builds on learning. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you, you learn about something and, and you, you know, you whet your appetite and then you're, you're, you're just naturally going to, to pull that thread and learn as much as you can. So if you also had one piece of advice you'd give to young leaders out there, what would it be? 
Wow, this has nothing to do with modernization. And this is just something that I've thought about since the, the whole COVID-19 normal started back in the first week of March. I would, I would tell leaders to really focus on soldier resiliency. Okay. Um, you know, think about the things that make you resilient. I know the things that make me resilient. So going to the gym, uh, going to church, um, doing my job. Now we've told people you can't go to church, you can't go to the gym, you can't go to work. So, you know, what are we, what are we doing to build resiliency? I mean, some people are intrinsically motivated. I'm going to go out to my garage and, 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 you know, hit the punching bag and, and, and lift, lift weights. I don't need anyone there screaming at me to do another rep or, but some people need that. Some people need that kind of that, that group dynamic or, or just one other person that, to get them through. Same with church. I mean, people go to church for different reasons. And, and you can say, well, you can it's broadcast on television. That's not the same for some people. Mm -hmm. Your job. I mean, some people, that's how they identify with themselves. You know, if, if, if people say, you know, who are you and what do you do? I, what do you do? I'd say, I, I'm Judd Mothers and I'm a soldier. You know, and if I can't be that, have I lost my sense of self? So I would, I would tell leaders out there to, to, to just really look at what we're doing to build resiliency in our force in a time where the things that typically enable resiliency aren't there for us. It's a leadership skill. You know, it's a, a, our boss, Colonel Blanchard, calls it leadership by walking around. Well, with social distancing, you can't do that, but you can pick up the phone. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you can certainly uh, check on your subordinates, your soldiers. I mean, I, I think of my military family as my family. So I call it checking on my family every day. That's what I would encourage leaders to do. And, and just think about this, this time uh, and, and, and think about the things that we did good, the things that we didn't do so great, and, and just and remember that, you know, because it's going to come around again, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's like anything that we do that requires rote memory. The more you do it, the better you get at it, you know. So focus on things like exercises. You know, I, I was thinking, you know, that, that one day after COVID, is is not such an issue. Maybe we should have a 100% telework exercise to stress our systems out. You know, exercise your phone trees. You know, uh, things like that. But uh, yeah, resiliency is. I, I can't. I can't really overemphasize that. It's just. It's. It's so important for our force, especially right now. Well, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your knowledge on modernization and multi-domain operations and how National Guard members are impacted and what they can do to prepare. Thank you, I was happy to do that. If you'd like more information on any of the topics we discussed today, please contact us at our social media pages in the links below. Tune in to Leaders Recon over the next few weeks as we bring in today's leaders and pioneers to discuss their experiences, share their wisdom, and help you grow as a leader. We will also be announcing opportunities to sharpen your skills and enhance your toolbox as members in today's Army National Guard. See you next time. If you like today's episode of Leaders Recon, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.